um, hello and welcome everyone to this inspirational learning event hosted by the Fashion Network. The focus of the conversation today is around individual journeys in the world of business. Before I open the conversation, a couple of things that I wanted to run through. Um, I'd like to firstly thank our partners in the event, Bruin Dolphin, who are wealth managers and support business owners when it comes to um, exiting their business. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube at a later date, please click the like and subscribe. I've always wanted to do that. If you're watching this live, then do use the chat feature for any questions. Uh, if you'd like to uh, speak to our panel during the talk, please raise your hand. Um, and also there'll be an opportunity to, um, to sort of ask the question in person if you, win, if you want in around 40 minutes. Um, so uh, also we have a post uh, networking session. If you haven't received the link, then obviously um, our hosts will share that in the chat feature. Uh, so I'm not sure how a virtual networking session is going to work, but I'm excited. Um, so joining us today, the Fashion Network have pulled together four fantastic, or five, including me, um, experts and leaders in business and fashion. I'd love to go around the table so you can introduce yourselves to the audience. So I'm going to start with Charlotte. I know Charlotte had a few problems before, so let's wait and we will go then to Wendy. Hey, Wendy. Hi, hi. So um, I'm uh, Wendy Hallett um, and I um, own Hallett Retail Services and Hallett Retail Logistics. And I set the business up in 1999, so it's now been going around 21 years. Um, and very, very much in a nutshell, it's uh, we work with lots of different brands across different categories um, and we take those brands um, as a portfolio to a number of different retailers. I think what's really amazing about your business evolution, essentially, um, is how you started very much in the retail concession and then you've kind of gone through right to, I guess, the logistics and it's become this end-to-end -end solution. Um, were you a kind of, was it the landscape at that time? Was, were you a unique proposition in, in the way that you were building this sort of retail concession and logistics sort of all, all under one roof? Yeah, I, I think so. I think when I started the business in the first place, um, the model was quite unique and we were the only people taking, um, using a concession format to take a group of brands um, to the retailers. So we were providing service to the brands, but also to the retailers. Um, and then what we found is as um, more and more um, online developed, that we we had to then go into that space so that while we were providing the brands a route to market in stores we needed to provide them a route to market um, online as well um, and really bought the logistics business because we couldn't find what we needed to support us um, and were frustrated with the service we were getting and the easiest um, way um, uh, and in some ways it wasn't a major decision 
um, it was just by buying our own business um, in that area, we then were able to yeah, expand and, and do this, as you say, end to end. Yeah. Uh, we can provide, you know, we can provide anything then for the brand, um, whether it's stores or um, warehousing. I guess it's the perfect example of, you know, how you how we build and how we evolve in business by building out what we know we need, but is not available. So that's thank you um, for uh, for sharing with us um, your sort of background there. Um, Charlotte, I can see your back. Apologies for the technical issues right at the beginning there. Yes, I'm back. Uh, afternoon, everyone. Uh, so if I'll just I'll just introduce myself. So I'm Charlotte Tattersall. I'm a chartered financial planner at Bruin Dolphin. Uh, Bruin Dolphin is is quite a large company. It's one that people. It's quite a quite a big company that nobody knows of. We don't actually do an awful lot of marketing. A lot of our clients come through referrals and, and word of mouth, which is fantastic. But we've got about thirty offices around the country. Um, just a bit about myself as well. So I've I've been qualified for about eleven years. When I fully qualified in 2014, I actually qualified at the top of the of my class so the top person top marks out of 600 other advisors that year and and my role is really to give advice to individuals um, around whether that's just general financial planning pensions investments um, and typically I work with quite a few entrepreneurs business owners to help them on the journey of making sure that they're financially secure independently of the business and also at that exit phase as well. Yeah, because I do think that this is often an underthought through area of the founder's journey in terms of that long term financial planning. Um, I guess I'd just love to know why do you think that is and have you seen a shift over the last 10 years and are founders more financially savvy today because ultimately they know what they're where they want to be and what they want to achieve? Yeah, I think it is quite typical to, to meet entrepreneurs and, and business owners where, you know, as you set up a company, the focus tends to be on the business and making sure that the business succeeds and is growing. And I think uh, I think we're all guilty of putting our own personal life admin at, at the bottom of the list. Um, and it's one of those things you, you might not necessarily get around to it. I think as well, we, we, we often hear people saying, you know, oh, I can't afford to put into a pension or I'm not wealthy enough to start investing. And actually, I think starting with just something is, is the key message that I would get across to people. Um, and I think people are quite, you know, quite aware of sort of gender pay gap. But another area that is, is, the, is the pension gap as well, which is so women have, have a, there's a gap of about 33 to 40 percent between genders on, on pensions as well. So it's, it's getting female founders, especially to be more wary of, of those sort of gaps and, and start earlier. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we are starting to see more people starting to think about it, reach out, have those conversations, which is which is really good, really positive news. Yeah, fantastic. And then uh, Jordan. Hi. Hi, Farah. Lovely to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Uh, yeah, it'd be great if you could just sort of give an overview of uh, your background and what you um, what you do at Darg Associates. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. So, um, so I'm founding director of Dark Associates, and we were established um, to really support the early stage business ecosystem. Um, we found that um, we we initially started as a as a recruitment company, basically, and we found that um, recruitment was quite expensive for a lot of businesses, and there isn't often um, a bespoke offering 
Um, so we started um, with as a consultancy rather than a typical high street recruiter, where we would work with early stage businesses to start and consider what the skills need to be um, when starting to grow and scale an organization. And, and also working with them, not just about giving them, you know, the, the, the actual um, candidates and the skills and the expertise in the business, but actually setting them up so they can actually go off and recruit themselves as well. Mm -hmm. So working with them on that full process. Um, my experience personally cuts across a number of different sectors. Um, and it became quite apparent that, you know, from a from a growth perspective, you know, people and recruitment is one thing, but actually they need tools, they need to know how to market, they need to know how to commercialize. So we became really a one-stop shop as a growth consultant for businesses, again, who are operating in, you know, the very early tech landscape. Um, we operate right across the north as well. We do have clients as far down as Kent and Bedfordshire, but we do predominantly focus on the north as a whole. Um, and we've got a real appetite to support women in business as well. Yeah. And, and that's really started to lead me to yeah. actually investing and to also taking NED um, roles within um, those organisations as well. I think what's really what I found really important about your um, about Dark Associates is, as you say, it's the cross-functional channels that are so essential in this startup. You know, such as talent. I mean, that is, and when you're um, a new business owner and you're looking to scale, sometimes you know there's a fear of affordability and when's the right time to bring in sort of experts in their fields. Um, and what would you say? what's the difference today versus five years ago in terms of startups and how they're approaching the um what you're what you tend to be supporting them most with yeah absolutely so with us Sarah we've seen that the landscape evolve I mean when I first started out you know the the startup landscape wasn't as big as what it is now and we weren't seeing as many companies actually being established um, we're seeing obviously triple that now and, and I think over the course of that as well as we've absolutely found that you know there's a lot of people who might be technical focused but don't have the commercial skills in the business and we found that a lot more recently where yeah. you know not only have yeah. we had um, founders of organizations that have the, the the technical ability they've also come with some of more of that commercial aspect about them and I think that's evolved but actually there's tougher competition out there for businesses now and I think that's where we've really had to adapt it to helping businesses with what they need and what they currently need at that time um, and basically taking them through a full process really right from inception all the way through to scaling to a point where they're scalable and, and, and sustainable as a business as well um, one of the key things as well as evolved over time is accessing finance. One of the biggest things that an organization, an early stage organization needs is finance as well. And I think, you know, we particularly in the north, we don't have um, the luxury of there being a lot of finance available. Um, we tend to reach out to our southern regions to, to raise investment for, for early stage businesses. And, and one of the things I think we've seen more recently as there's been a number of initiatives to support early stage businesses that have come to the forefront. 
And I would say, particularly in the last 18 months, given you know, the circumstances of everything that's been going on over the last 18 months, you know, the ability to find finance for companies has been a little bit easier given all of the additional support through grant initiatives and, and, and debt funding as well. So I think in answer to your question there, Sarah, I think, you know, it has evolved, the landscape has evolved, competition has got tougher, mm. but there is more access and support mm. available for, for organisations who are looking to set out and particularly for female entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, which is all, you know, um, and then uh, Jody, from, who's an investor at Charlie Oscar, I've got to say, I do love that, um, that business name. <laughs> no, brilliant. Thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, nice to meet everyone. I'm Jody. Um, so I bet a lot of people haven't heard of Charlie Oscar, but we launched beginning of this year. Um, big part of our story comes from one of our co-founders, who's James, uh, James Connolly. So he started a business called Fetch uh, back in sort of 2008, which was a mobile focused marketing agency. So he really focused on how to market app based businesses, sort of Uber, uh, Facebook, Apple Music, and then took the business and was helping more sort of e-commerce uh, based businesses in the UK and US scale, um, but sort of really large clients like Lululemon. Um, and he sold the business a few years ago uh, to Dentsu and met our other co-founder, Elliot Richmond, who's a really active angel investor. Um, and they sort of put their heads together and saw a real gap in the market for, I guess, one, a, a fund that was really just focused on consumer brands and digitally native uh, consumer brands. Um, we felt there was sort of a lack of focus on that in the UK. Um, and secondly, sort of capital that really added value. So they've sort of repurposed what existed at Fetch in terms of really using data science to scale brands. Um, so we invest in brands and then they, the brands get access to our data science platform and our in-house data science team to really sort of help brands, I guess, unlock the data that they already have. Um, and we're finding that I think a lot of founders, especially with now sort of the iOS updates, Facebook becoming more expensive, it's becoming a lot more about, you know, how do you leverage your own data and really take the insights from that to scale the business. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Charlie Oscar and really loving it so far. Amazing. So you're on the front line, really, when talking to new um, new startups and seeing sort of trends coming through. Thank you. Um, so we're going to go into uh, the main sort of questions um, and then we will, depending on how we do, we'll move to, um, to Q&As and audience um, questions as well. Uh, so Jodie and Jordan, I, I just want to kind of um, kick off. Um, I hate talking about pre-COVID. Uh, pre I hate that phrase, so I'm going to refer to it as pre-2020. Um, what would you say have, because I'm a true believer that with challenge comes opportunity. So what have been the biggest challenges for startups, but actually what has then evolved to become the biggest opportunity in terms of how you evolve and how you, you launch your business in today's marketplace landscape? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. So I think for, for myself, what we've seen is obviously pre uh, pre twenty twenty. I think we we saw that you know that the, the, the landscape was growing and developing, and then obviously when certain things occurred, it seems as if it was very much oh, there's been an absolute shock here. What do we do? And I think that was a real challenge for a lot of companies, a lot of startups, particularly those type of companies who had clinical trials ongoing and really needed support from external. 
um, resources and universities and the likes of so real sort of life sciences, um, med tech type companies started to struggle because they couldn't get the clinical trials done quick enough, they couldn't get the right research and development trials done quick enough. And we saw that as being a real um, challenge for a lot of a lot of early stage companies. However, what we did see is resilience, and I think we saw that in an awful lot of founders. They were quite quickly able to pivot and look at actually what was important for that business during that time, and actually how did they make use of what they've got in the business as well. Um, and I think in, with companies particularly who were on the cusp of actually just starting to generate revenues as well, we started to see a lot of companies start to pivot and look at what they had internally, what they had in terms of innovation that could actually support what was happening in, in the current landscape as well. I think another great thing that's come out of it, and we were just chatting about this before we came live on air, um, was about obviously the virtual landscape. And actually, for me personally, I've seen a huge uplift in terms of business activity really take off purely because of the fact that we are operating virtually. And as I mentioned in my earlier response, um, the, the, the investment landscape has really evolved. Um, we, I, I work as a director as well as, as, as at North Invest, and we used to have virtual pitching events where we, sorry, physical pitching events, where we would um, showcase early stage companies to investors. We pivoted very quickly with that and took all of those events um, on virtual, um, in the virtual landscape. And it actually found that we were able to support more companies reach their investment, um, 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 good point purely because of the fact that they were achieving investment from differing locations because we could do that virtually and we were able to build out bigger investment networks as well to support those startups. So I think, you know, to, to round the answer off, we saw an awful lot of challenges. But for me, the opportunities were much greater. Um, and I think people have responded extremely well. I mean, for me, a company that was very early stage and it's now progressed during that period, for me, is an absolute solid business. Yeah, totally. I guess for you, for you as well on a similar question, but because obviously you launched at the beginning of this year. So, um, but I, so you've kind of, were you in a pre-launch mode as well that you also had to be agile and, um, and work through? Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think we've we've just seen positives from it um, from from perspective of being a new fund. Because I think um, so as as Jordan mentioned, I think just the the access to more founders, being able to take so many more calls with founders, regardless of location, um, getting sort of so many more conversations going was was a real plus. And I think in the sort of brands, digitally native brand space. We, we've seen the reverse where there's a lot of businesses that have really taken off because consumer behaviors has changed. And now people have, where they may have, have bought products in the supermarkets, they're now all switching online. I think a lot of the challenge that some of the businesses we've spoken to is proving to investors that that's going to, to stay and it's going to be a sticky behavior. Um, so I think the challenge um, for a lot of the brands we speak to is, is retention and really making sure that they sort of hold, take, I guess, hold on to those customers that they've acquired during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, some of the growth has been exceptional, but there's a, there's a bit of uncertainty around how, how long they can keep those customers. Yeah. Would you say the profile of investors, of your typical investor has changed and maybe is younger as well? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's a like as a woman going into investing, it's of my my age. I think I found it interesting because I think in the in the UK, 
I found a lot of pushback when I was applying for roles um, with sort of my age and experience. I found the UK landscape tends to be sort of a slightly older demographic versus myself. I find myself quite a young investor, whereas in the US market, um, which is where I sort of started my career, I think it was a much younger group of people um, in that space. I think, yeah, I think the UK is probably a slightly older demographic, interestingly. Yeah, and I think it's probably the the sort of move towards the increase in tech uh, startups that's sort of generating that. I mean, there have been a lot mm -hmm. of successful exits for uh, young, well, sort of, you know, sort of um, not your typical uh, profile of um, of business uh, or CEO who have then gone and started their own um, portfolio, such as the the guys from. Um, innocent juices yeah definitely um and wendy um so, and i'm going to get on to your your sort of story is is I'm, I'm just in awe um but you have particularly within the fulfillment um sector you have been very much at the forefront of that impact in consumer changes uh, with the digital acceleration, but even before that, you know, when we had, uh, when it was, you know, the introduction of e-tail, as it were, which has seemed so kind of ancient now, um, how did you stay, um, how did you sort of adjust to that and pivot quickly? Um, did you see it coming down the tracks? Were you already sort of going in that direction because you you had that uh, intuitive retail sort of uh, mindset um yeah I think I think that that it's interesting and in trying to sort of remember back to um to to, to how that happened I think it was probably a, a combination of both that we were still doing well in stores and we were developing into new categories and new types of um, stores. So we started off in department stores and then we started trading with um, fashion um, multiples, um, which meant we could scale much quicker because we weren't shop fitting, we weren't staffing those um, uh, stores, but we were um, putting the brands in on relatively large space into lots of stores. So that side of the business was um, still doing well. But what we were seeing is some more competition come in. Because when I first set up, there was nobody really doing what we were doing. And then what happened is some of the brands that started with us then were really growing. So we we're in a more of a position to be able to do things, if you like, without our support um, and our expertise. So I think that... It, we saw it as we needed to um, move on and get into that space fast um, because otherwise we're going to be left. Oh, have we lost Wendy? Oh, well, I'm sure Wendy will come back. These are the joys of. Um, oh, can you hear us now, Wendy? I can, yes, yes. Could you hear me? We lost you just for uh, for a moment there. But uh, yeah, it was when you were talking about how um, your some of your client, your partners were growing as well. And so you were. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's important that we offered something new and different that they weren't able to do. So yeah. that 
Um, yeah, and then we were working with a warehouse company, which we then offered to buy so yeah. that we had much more control over how we set it all up. And the one, one key thing, um, and this is something that we are focusing again on now, was that if you are able to do the marketplace, so where the retailer allows you to pick, pack and dispatch direct to the customer, um, you can operate with one pot of stock. And that sort of model um, is, uh, is really good because you put, they only have to put one lot of stock in our warehouse and then we can service a number of um, different retailers' websites. So yeah. that, if you like, it was the same thing we were doing in stores, but we just replicated it online. Yeah. Um, and you can add new into that. Everybody's on the same IT system with us. So once we've uh, integrated with a retailer, then our brands can then slot in pretty easily to that retailer, whether it's yeah. in stores or online. And I mean, you you kind of entered there for when you made the acquisition um, of the fulfillment center, you entered into a, a really male dominated sector. Um, what um, was sort of, did you encounter any of the, um, any of the sort of the normal challenges that often we, we can hear about? Or do, did you find actually it was a, a it was a great pivotal turning point for the business that then you just kind of went, you accelerated and left everyone behind. And it's really interesting because um, I think as you go through your journey, you forget certain things. And just that question has really reminded me. I haven't triggered, I've not triggered you, have I? No, you've not triggered me, <laughs> but I, and I, uh, it, it's a really interesting question because the, I think for me, it was around culture. So mm. I had built my own business up from me being a consultant to coming up with this idea um, and then started to employ people um, and build, um, if you like, a business to a degree that I, you know, I, well, not even to a degree, you know, I loved it. It was my culture. Um, the, um, I was always very careful to employ the best person for the role, but we were um, very um, representative, if you like, of women. Um, so there were a lot of strong women within my concession side of the business. And when we bought and we took over the teams at the warehouse, it was quite male. Yeah. And it wasn't just that it was male, but the way people um, had been taught to um, deal with things and to speak to each other um, and to value each other um, was not the culture that I had in the concessions business. Mm. So, um, and it's really interesting looking back that yes, some people left, mm. but one or two of the people that at first, um, because, you know, walking around the warehouse floor being called love, darling, and, you know, and um, comments behind the back, my husband's in the business as well, or, you know, who wears the trousers, and all of those things did happen. Mm. But we still have a number of people employed by us now in that warehouse. And they are, the way they are is now very different from when we bought that business. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really important when you take over a business, not if you like just to assume 
you know, they acted the way they acted because that's where the way they were being treated and how the yeah. bosses acted. Yeah, and they often sort of followed the example of the leaders. Um, and, and I imagine with your change um, and your focus from a culture perspective, that itself must have led to, you know, great retention as well. Because yeah. that's another key part of um, a business that we often overlook. It's that retention of, of key personnel, key staff members um, that uh, therefore building that strong cu culture. It's not a given, you know, mm -hmm. it's a it's quite a hard thing to really build this a genuine caring culture uh, of team players. Yeah, and it feels more like it is two separate businesses, but it now feels more like one business nice. with the way it's both of them are run. Yeah, Fantastic. with the same, you know, with the same standards and expectations um, for for both of them. And um, and Charlotte, so I'm going to come to you as my financial advisor, and we're going to assume that I've built a business. Well, I have, but on this occasion. Uh, where uh, I built a business and I've hit my key targets, I've scaled to profitability, now I want to exit. Um, how, how do I start the process and when is the right time to exit? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Like I said, we work with quite a few entrepreneurs and, and business owners. And I think the, the place to start really is thinking about what, what's next. You know, once you exit the business, what are your, your goals? Is it a case of just getting to that magic number so that you can effectively start working? Because we have people in that group, that category that want to build a business up, sell it, and then that's it. That's them done. Other types of people, they want to go on to the next thing. It's the next adventure, the next challenge. Um, so it's, I would say start with what your objectives are. Um, and also get advice early. So don't just think, oh, OK, I'm, I'm exiting. I'm going to have this amount of money. I therefore need some financial advice. Do it a few years early because we've actually had people come to us saying that they, you know, they want to do work for another few years to get a certain valuation on their business. And, and sometimes we can actually show them that they don't need that that figure they had in their head. And actually that magic number for them is a lot lower and actually they can do what they wanted a lot sooner so come come to come and get advice a lot earlier have a conversation with someone pick up the phone um and the other thing is as well if you if you start earlier start start speaking to a financial advisor early on as well mm -hmm. if you are planning ex an exit in three four years whatever it may be they can actually structure and put things in place so that we can use allowances you've got available in those few years while you're still working and able to draw money out of the company um, prior to that exit. So really get someone involved early, early in the process. Yeah. Um, and whilst as a company, we, we deal with individuals and help them with their individual finances. We don't get involved in the sort of the valuation of, of businesses. We do have various contacts um, that we can put people in touch with. So it's very much a, a team approach of having those, those professional advisors that you trust. Uh, to, to help you through that process yeah absolutely um and we caught up before the event and i loved when you were giving me a bit of background about um your journey before uh, starting um in your current role and you were saying that you decided to be unapologetically intelligent which i just love. <laughs> yeah that's just like such a a brilliant sort of statement 
would you say that as a society we've kind of broken through that taboo that we often had about talking about wealth investments and ultimately being confident in our success um our founders sort of and business leaders today more open than maybe you know 10 years ago um or are we still just as brits too bloody polite and embarrassed to talk about wealth and ambitions and all these sort of things what 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 do you think yeah i think i think we're definitely getting there we're making progress but i think like we were saying before is we're still very British about it in terms of it's if you talk about wealth and your investments or maybe, you know, what you've got in the background in terms of, of finances, it's almost can be seen as bragging. So I think there's still this taboo about actually talking about these these things that we should be fairly open about and, and talking among peers about. Um, and I think, you know, it's been this. Um, it has definitely evolved. We're getting more people starting to have more open conversations, come to us earlier to have those 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 thoughts and, and see if they're doing the right things but if you think back you know we've never had um you know I was I was never brought up ne- understanding you know finances money how to budget you know debt simple things like that where and that was never taught in schools at all but it was starting to see a shift of, of a push to have that education for young people and we're starting to see companies as well supporting schools and younger people to actually start thinking about this um, so I think we are seeing a shift, but we've still got some way to go. Yeah. Um, so Wealthy Her did a report last year, they surveyed over 2000 people and about two thirds of women still didn't feel financially savvy. And that's so we've still got a long way to go. And it's about educating yourself, reaching out to people, talking to your your, your friends and family about about these things. Yeah. I mean, as a financial advisor, I think I think we've said it before that you know, there's never a cost for an initial chat to see if you're doing, maybe if there's more that you could think about. So I would say reach out, pick up the phone. There's me and my team at, at Bruin in Manchester that are more than happy to have a conversation with anyone to say, you know, have you thought about this or, you know, put these things in place. Yes. You know, if we can't necessarily help you as a client right now, we can at least point you in the right direction. And I think that's that's key. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and I think you said at the beginning, as founders we often can we put ourselves last um personally and when you're tied up with the business you need to make sure that there are solid you know foundations and that you have thought ahead because you know you can't assume that someone else is going to think um in any exit position or any valuation or who knows what comes around the corner it's so important to to have that fallback and take take responsibility and I think we have to um you know we have to sort of shake away this fear of having conversations about investments and having having them with friends um and not worrying what people think if it's seen as bragging or it's just not this you know I think it's a really interesting change in society as well um which is you know probably is welcome without without question um and Jordan so from your side what sort of uh, particularly with within your role and and the the particular business leaders um, and founders that you've worked with what in your mind um, what are the, the the great skills to becoming a business leader in today's uh, world especially when it's so 
fluid and it's so it's so changeable um and you know how do people overcome the fear element which can often stop people from launching a business and i'm sure wendy um you might have some great insight on that you know i always say entrepreneurialism is a mindset because you know there are never any guarantees it's just got to be down to complete mindset and self-belief and discipline what what sort of what's been your most um um your your most sort of uh the greatest lessons in terms of these types of personalities yeah absolutely I, I totally agree Sarah I think it's all you know it's not you can't learn to be an entrepreneur you're either are uh, or, you, or you're not so to speak and I do I, going back to what Charlotte's just mentioned there I think that comes at a very young age to be honest um I think that um you know me personally um I could have gone down the academic route and I actually went to university and but instead I really wanted to make money rather than actually just spend the money um, from student loans and it was very quick that I was very I wanted to set up something where I knew I was going to make money because I didn't want to get into debt to then have to pay back a student loan basically and I think that mindset was always there with from for me personally because I saw that from my parents my parents had their own business and I think that was just the way that I personally was brought up but what I'm seeing, obviously, from other entrepreneurs is, is it's very similar. You know, it starts at a very young age where you you have that that mannerism about you. But I'm going to use that word again. Resilience is absolutely key because whenever you're trying to um, achieve something in life, you're going to come across a lot of barriers and a lot of hurdles. And I think somebody who's extremely resilient and focused and ambitious and thick skinned as well. I mean, you know, let's look at a woman in business, for example, we've got to jump through a lot more hurdles, you know, we, we really do, we do struggle. And I think, you know, we, we often have, um, we're often not looked in the same light. And I think that does have an effect on a lot of people. Mm. So I think that we all, you know, for an, an entrepreneur, particularly, has to sort of have that, you know, that, that mindset where they will set out to achieve something and if that doesn't work they'll, they'll definitely consider something else or they'll keep going as well you know it's all about either keep going or pivoting and I think that's really really important as an entrepreneur I think we're seeing lots of different different skills coming through and, and when I first started in like software the software tech sector as well there wasn't many women who were coming through the university channels or the skill channels wanting to get into software development for example or those more technical based roles that was obviously over 10 years ago now we're seeing so many women coming through those routes so I do I genuinely think that you know setting out you know as an entrepreneur and is for me I think there's a lot more options for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur now and, and also a lot more support as well mm. but I do think that you know you've got you've got to have such thick skin you really really do because you're going to come across challenges every day. And I think one of the key things as well is actually having a network around you. Even if you're a sole founder, be part of some form of network, whether that is a business-based network or a personal network or, you know, just somebody who at the end of the day, you can have that steam effect where you have a conversation and you can, you know, talk about maybe some of the issues that you're having and other people can, over, can, can help you overcome them. But it's not easy. It really isn't easy. But we're seeing people now more and more so wanting to become entrepreneurs and particularly women as well. Yeah, I always say um, to people, you know, be very careful who you take your counsel from. 
because there will always be the naysayers, which is great because, you know, you can't you can't go through life assuming everything's going to pan out the way you want. <clears throat> but there will always be people who give you their opinion based on how they, you know, based on their fears or their boundaries or their where they're willing to push things and take a risk. And sometimes there has to be an element of risk when you go, well, you know, there was naturally an element of risk by being an entrepreneur and wanting to start up a business, goes without saying. Um, and so always judge, you know, be very careful who you are talking to because, you know, the, the most demoralizing thing is if you're just surrounded by people who are just, you know, sucking the enthusiasm out of your little sort of little sort of baby that you're trying to incubate um, and all you want to do is feed it with kind of like positivity and you know the the sort yeah. of the will to sort of grow um, and I think that says more about other people's mindsets and you know how they how they approach um, and I think that's also you know quite um, a British thing where we we don't want to be seen as um, as bragging because we don't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable which is so a very British sort of position yeah so, people um, like founders also get a lot of advice from people as well that, that, that a lot of people will give them advice and support and one of the things that we always recommend a founder do is, is take the bits of information that they can relate to and actually yeah. feels right for them as well because they've got to feel comfortable and confident in their vision and their strategy that they're outlining and I think it's really important that you know you can't take on board that everything that everybody's telling you you only take snippets that can relate to it yeah um, and also you build relationships with those like-minded people as well because that's where you're going to start to iron out maybe some of those people who do take away some of that energy yeah. I would say any any founder female founder out there needs kind of a, a, a girl squad made up of of sort of you four because I think you're, you would cover all bases um and Jodie I'd love to hear you must sort of you must see so many pitches of your time um and landing the pitch is by no an investor sort of deck is by no means um an obvious task what would you say are the best things to um, to focus on when you're building your your deck, and what have been the things that you see quite common, quite frequently, but actually you should avoid. Because I think mm. there's a real there's a real art to it, and you can you can pay people small fortunes to build your investor deck because it's that important in the journey. But doing it from you know from home, how would you? What would be your your sort of recommendations yeah of course um i think for me the biggest thing is, is getting people's attention really early on which and some of the best decks i've read start with sort of a personal story and the reason why sort of that that product or that brand was born um from a personal from a personal perspective because i think that just it's much easier to remember people and their own stories versus just you know just the metrics or just looking at the product um, so people that have got sort of strong stories of, of how their product was born um, and making it relatable um, and really setting up the problem that they saw in the market and how that product is filling that, that problem. So I think we see a lot of brands popping up that aren't really solving key problems or, or they, they struggle to sort of really articulate that well. 
Um, and the other thing I'd say that I always sorry, that have to go and ask for sort of after reading a pitch deck, and I'd love to see it more in pitch decks, so just more KPIs, um, especially on, on the brand side around sort of loyalty, retention, community. Um, and I think something that I've, I've noticed in the sort of consumer space is women are very good about building community first and then selling the product in. Men are sort of typically less, less good at that. And I think now we're seeing in sort of in the brand space, people are more interested in communities and sort of brand love. Um, so I think the way the more people, the sort of more founders that can show that they've built that community and how engaged that community is um, really comes across well. Yeah, I'm just uh, looking through. Uh, we've just got a question, actually, that I just think might fit in um, specifically on what you're talking about. I've got um, uh, AA who um, says, how do you narrow down to focus on one area, one area when you have few ideas running simultaneously? And I think that's the problem, isn't it? It's it's when you when you kind of um spread when you have too many ideas running simultaneously it's kind of giving any one of those particularly enough attention to flourish and grow what would you say is this in terms of just to get the question right the sort of areas of the business of sort of what to focus on um i think from what i understand aa maybe you can add to it um but i think this is more um in terms of narrowing down the focus to one area of business, or are you talking about one? Maybe AA, maybe you can um, just give us a little, yeah, she says yes. So okay. yeah, do you got more? Yeah. yeah, I'd say, um, I think for me, this is my personal opinion, um, some investors might disagree, but I think one thing we're, we're seeing is there's just so much more competition in the space. So then I would much rather, and I think a lot of a lot of other investors in the space I speak to would, would also agree, rather see a smaller community that are really highly engaged and really love your product, rather than a bigger community that feels a bit sort of meh about it, is the only word I can think of. Um, so I think, that's for me showing really strong retention, really strong engagement in the brand um, for me is the sort of area to, to really focus on for me. Yeah. Um, thank you. And uh, Wendy, so, and this is, this is, so firstly, Wendy received an MBE for services to diversity and fashion in 2013. Um, and this is the most incredible part. You have not taken a dime of investment uh, since you launched, which is bloody incredible. And you started your business with initially £1,000 investment. Firstly, I love you. You're my girl crush. How did you do this? And also, do you have an exit plan? And if so, do you need someone to go on holiday with? I think... Um... It, if I if I give a flavour perhaps of um, why I set up the business, I think that would probably explain then perhaps why I didn't go out and look for investment and how I did what happened was was grow it organically. So as we needed money, we we had we had it in the business. So I um, I had two and and I think this story will. Um, resonate with a number of mothers with small children so at the time I had two small children 
and I was in a job share working at Arcadia. I'd um, loved doing all the stuff that um, had worked for Topshop since I came out of uni and um, had not, although I look back at my school days and realise now there were elements of entrepreneurship that I did, at the time it had never crossed my mind that I wanted to set up my own business. But what happened, and that was uh, 21 years ago, is that I then got made redundant and I could not get any part-time work um, at the level I was used to operating. And um, I've never been so, I remember being really frustrated and recruitment companies wouldn't touch me. They said, no, if you don't wanna work full-time, we're not interested in pitching you to, um, to retailers. And so I then decided I didn't want to, um, if you like, sacrifice. I wanted to work at a certain level, but I also wanted to be the mum that I wanted to be. And so I then set up as a consultant um, and then had that idea of pulling these brands together. They um, initially were quite a few of the concessions that I knew because I'd worked with Topshop. So a number of these companies have been trading with Topshop. And I went and had a chat with the um, external business manager at Debenhams. It's so embarrassing now when I think what I did. I went in and had a cup of coffee, no business plan, no, you know, literally no nothing, not even projections or anything. And I said, give me some space in one of your uh, stores and I'll bring some stock in and I'll employ somebody to, to, to run it. And so I suppose what happened is, is that I never needed the investment. I think, man, uh, if I remember rightly, Debenhams paid for the shop kit, et cetera. And, um, and also I was doing it on my own. I didn't, you know, we were a young couple. We didn't really have money to invest and I hadn't got friends or family that were gonna invest. So I sort of literally just didn't even think about going after investment. And then we grew it and we were able to, as I say, come up with a model where we weren't buying stock. Um, are you okay? You've lost me? No? No, no, we got you. You've got me. Okay. Um, and yes, yeah, so we weren't buying the stock. So the brands always owned the stock um, and the retailer was providing for argument's sake fixtures. Um, and I was... Yeah, so I was able to grow the business um, without having to go outside and get money. And then I think the more we did it that way, the more we did not want other people involved in the business. And I think if I remember rightly, it was about 10 years ago, it just was getting so big um, and very sort of stressful. And I was at the point where I didn't, you know, I still had children I'd, um, of a certain age and I didn't really want to work full time. And it was at that point that my husband came in on board with me. He's more finance and tech savvy than I am. And the partnership then just worked really, really well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and we just decided, no, we like owning 100% of this. And um, we, we were able to do what we wanted to do um, without having to, um, to investment. So I think, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. It, it was because I think it was never meant to be um, yeah. this business that it became um Don't you it, find that sometimes there are some people where it's planned and it's what you know they do they do it and it's always been the the plan of you know their life plan and there are others where it evolves and it blossoms but then when you're in that um sort of where there is no plan you must also have to be 
you know, grow this incredible resilience to deal with unknown and uncertainty. Um, how have you developed that part of you or was it always was it always there or I think it's a it's interesting I think um, and I'm I'm very open about um, some of the challenges when I was much younger so I lost my mum when I was seven um, to cancer and I was brought up in an all-male um, household my father brought my, me up with my two brothers and um, it yeah at times that was um, quite challenging um, and I had to balance between ensuring my voice was heard, ensuring that I wasn't the one left doing all the women's work, um, yeah. while also, I think, um, being a bit of a peacemaker as well. So I think, looking back, that um, for horrible reasons, that made me quite independent and quite resilient from a, from a very early age. Mm. Um, and then... I, I think that, the, and then I, I myself had cancer. I don't want to, to, to make this too much. You know, these are all the things that have been thrown at me. But I also then had cancer while my children were still quite young. So I think that sometimes some of the business challenges that were thrown at me in relation to what I had to cope with, you know, I was running the business and having chemo for six months and two small children. I think really then when you get thrown... Um, yeah. And don't get me wrong, COVID has really um, been extremely challenging for my business. Um, I think you you do remember that you've actually got through some worse things. So therefore, we will come out of this. It's applying um, that. Um, I mean, business will always be personal when you're a founder and when it's your own business. But you always have to put it into perspective, don't you, and understand and I think, you know, there is, there are, we all as humans go through these challenges and uh, sort of these terrible challenges in life, but that is part of every human's journey. That's how we grow and, um, and sometimes stepping back and, and putting a little bit of space between the problem and yourself so you're not in the thick of it if there's a business problem you know is a really important uh skill to to have particularly you know considering the 18 months that we've come out of um I've i'm been, just sorry i've been much more honest though through this last 18 months about um when i have struggled yeah because i think that's the other thing well the one thing that this time has taught me is i didn't have to keep it covered up so that the times, you know, being that inspirational leader to the business and always being, I'm okay and trying to lead, that got really difficult at times. So I've been more honest these last 18 months when I've struggled. Definitely. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. We have to be, um, we have to, to share when, you know, when we're not feeling great, um, because actually it helps empower everyone else in the sense of, making people understand that it's normal to have these feelings and actually the lesson is how to get yourself through it how what's the survival technique you know is it going for a walk in nature is it a swim but you know trying to understand what those are, are really important we are at the top of the hour I was going to ask a really funny closing question but we're out of time and it was um 
but anyway, it's probably uh, probably was more funny for me than it was for anyone else. So uh, probably a lucky escape there for everyone. Um, so the final message before we jump off this Zoom link and into networking mode, if you're a female founder and would like support with growing and scaling your business or you're thinking about an exit, get in touch with the Fashion Network. They host The Board You Can't Afford a business forum that includes investors, non-execs, and other C-suite leaders. Um, all that's left for me to say is thank you to the panel. You are amazing. Um, and a major thanks to Bruin Dolphin for sponsoring the event. Have a great afternoon, everyone. See you on the other side, on the other networking. I'm keen to see how this networking virtual event. Oh, there we go. I was cut off with my prime. <laughs> is this, is it? So are we in the networking event or do we have to come in somewhere different? Uh, basically, we'll share the link into the chat now. Um, again, and if you just leave this link and then click and then on go the next to link. The other. Yeah, and that applies to all the audience as well. If anyone wants to join, uh, there you go, there's a link. If anyone wants to join and speak to Sarah and Wendy, face-to-face -face, they're more than welcome as well fantastic okay, okay we'll see you. um jordan you're not you can't join you've got to go to another meeting haven't you yes i've got to head to another meeting now oh well thank you so much no for everything problem. thank you very much thank you and lovely to meet everybody as well take care darling. bye thank you bye And just a reminder to everybody who's still here, if you click on that link in the chat box, uh, you'll be able to join us in a meeting, face-to-face uh, uh, -face meeting with the panel and a few of the other guests. Uh, we will see you there shortly.